2: Welcome back to Missing Maura Murray. I'm Tim, here today with Lance. How's it going, Lance? Oh, it's going very well. Couldn't be better, actually. How are you, Tim? I'm doing great, Lance. This episode, as you know, is part of Private Investigations for the Missing, which is a nonprofit that we are on the board of. Check it out at investigationsforthemissing.org. And this is the second case that Private Investigations for the Missing has taken on.
1: Now, this case is being worked on by our good friend and former police chief, Lou Barry, and it is a case that is dated back to November of 2001, and it is the unsolved murder of Dean Webster.
2: That's right. Dean Webster was a 28 year old male and he was found deceased outside of his residence. This unsolved murder took place in Rochester, Vermont. There was evidence at the scene as well as results from an autopsy that confirm Mr. Webster was the victim of a homicide but it is unsolved. And so, Lance, this is an unsolved homicide, which is not a missing person's case.
1: Right. But it does represent the template in which Private Investigations for the Missing wants to approach cases. The cases come to us, we vet them, and our investigators who are working with us, like Greg Overacker or Lou Berry, they will decide which ones they think could be solvable and something that they can put this template to and Show that it works as a uh, as a system for bringing resolution to something. We're almost there with the Erica Franilich case, and in this interview, Lou even says this is a very solvable case. So we might as well take that that format that we're trying to showcase and we're we're trying to raise money for and and apply it to this.
2: So this is the first step in the investigation. Actually, uh, we connected with the Webster family a little bit, not us, but Lou. And so, the, uh, again, this is part of that first step is doing a podcast and putting out some information. So if you know any information in this case, it is very important to turn that tip over. You can email private investigations for the missing at missing at gmail.com. There's also a Dean Webster specific page and Facebook page now as well, Who Killed Dean Webster? But you can also submit a tip to the Vermont State Police by texting... Keyword V, as in Vermont, tips to 274637.
1: And you did say that this is the first step in the process. And I think that is a very unique position for all of us to be in and really to witness how it all starts. You'll hear Lou literally say, I don't know about this and I don't know about this. I know about this and this. So you get to experience the investigative technique and the investigative process that he's going through we're going to have him back on again we'll hopefully have family members on and maybe some reporters who reported on it and you get to see it right from the beginning and you get to hear it from a media standpoint an investigator standpoint a family standpoint and hopefully by the time we're done we'll have some conclusion here and some resolution to this unsolved
2: murder that would be great And so, yeah, it's it's a really unique experience. You get to see the investigation right from the beginning, from where they're taking over. And it's not really going to sound like a normal podcast episode where you hear the whole story because there's not much there. What we just talked about was basically the starting point and Lou took over from there. And these episodes are going to be aired on both of our channels, that being Missing Maura Murray and Crawl Space, because we want to spread the awareness for this case as far and wide as possible. And this will not replace this week's Missing Maura Murray episode. Actually, we're going to do a new episode with uh, Laura Rist regarding the disappearance of Trenny Gibson, and that is coming on Friday, June 26th. Laura once again
1: brings to the table more details of Trini Gibson's disappearance. She is one of the most thorough citizen detectives we've ever worked with. I can't speak highly enough about her.
2: Okay, everybody. Thanks a lot. Make sure to follow Private Investigations for the Missing Social Pages. And don't forget the Dean Webster, Who Killed Dean Webster Facebook group.
1: And check out all of our shows at crawlspace-media.com.
2: We are being joined now by private investigator Lou Barry. Lou, how's it going today? I'm oh, wonderful. How about yourself? Doing great. We're doing
1: just great. Thank you so much for joining us, taking time out of your extremely busy day that you... Uh, you always seem to have busy days. Every time we talk to you, you're always looking into something. You have some case going on. You're like this behind-the-scenes like guy behind the curtain, like the the, 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 the man <laughs> behind the man.
0: Yeah, so sometimes it seems that way, I guess.
1: Well, you are a former police chief. Can you give a quick uh, bit of background for anyone who doesn't know you? We- we're familiar with you because of Brianna Maitland's case and private investigations for the missing and Bruce's connection with you. Can you give a little uh, background for anyone who's hearing your voice for the first time?
0: Uh, sure. I spent um, about 11 years down on the Cape um, with the uh, police department down there. I was started as a patrolman and then uh, became a detective. And then ultimately a sergeant, and then um moved up to the western part of the state uh became a police chief. I stayed as chief for twenty four years uh, retired um, I started teaching in college classes back in nineteen ninety as an adjunct and I'm still teaching in a couple different places teach a lot at the police academy uh after I retired. I got involved in um private investigating- uh kind of almost accidentally a a friend of mine had filed a civil suit and Needed an investigator. So I helped her out. That was a sexual assault case uh, and um, did the investigation for her, located some witnesses, et cetera. And she had a pretty good um, settlement in federal court out of it. After that, I did a couple more cases like that for different individuals and then had a kind of a low period. Uh, I was familiar with Brianna Mainland's case. So at the time, I was working with a young lady and we started. Met with Bruce and started looking at that case, and um, got involved in cold cases that way. So, since Bruce started the nonprofit uh, Private Investigators for the Missing, I've been you know trying to help out as best I can with with that type of case. We did the I worked with Greg on the Fran case, case. I think you've done a show on, and we have helped out a kid out of Texas on um, Brandon Lawson's case, and this case here. Came to my attention via a, a journalist who had done a quite a bit of very thorough research on the case and reached a dead end, and reached out to see if perhaps PI for the missing could help out.
2: Okay, and now this case is a little bit different, though, because private investigations for the missing primarily deals with missing persons cases, and this isn't exactly that, is it?
0: No, it isn't, and it you know it is a little bit of a reach uh, relative to what PI for the missing was founded for however uh in a way it isn't i mean it's i think certainly in the case of, of like brianna and many of the other cases the the fact that a person is missing you know realistically you kind of figure that they they're deceased um in this case we just know that at the beginning that's all um other than that it's, it's very similar and that there's uh, not a lot to go on. It's been investigated thoroughly. And, you know, there's no no hard evidence at this point.
1: But before we get into the details of this case, I just want to uh, talk a little bit further about private investigations for the missing, focusing on missing people. And you gave a great answer. This isn't so much a missing person. It's an unsolved murder. Uh, it's still the same template that, that we're always striving for. We, we see a really good example of that with uh, Erica Franelich's case and the work that uh, you and Greg have done with that. Uh, so there, I feel like there's a, a template that is always being fine-tuned, especially in the early days of this nonprofit. And this case here, and correct me if I'm wrong, I feel like this is a really good application of that template.
0: Yeah, I, I think so. And, you know, the main premise is how trying to help families get answers and by providing them with, with a resource specifically a private investigator that they just can't uh, themselves afford to do. So, you know, in that sense, there is really no difference in the cases. You know, this particular case is almost 20 years old and there's been, you know, as far as we know, publicly, no, no progress on it.
1: Okay. And we are talking about the murder of Dean Webster in, November of two thousand one. Do you want to go into it chronologically, how it how it happened, or do you want to talk about what type of person Dean was?
0: Well, uh, actually, you know, maybe a little bit of both. Uh, Dean uh, grew up in in that area, in Rochester area, and uh, Rochester is a um, small rural village, typical, I think, Vermont. Put your picture if you picture a Vermont town; it's kind of tucked away in the green mountains and at one time was, uh, you know, known for, for for mills and things, and now it's kind of an artsy community from what I get, gather, near the ski areas. Um, farming certainly played a big role in the, in the history of the town. I think now it's about 1,100 people. Not sure how many were there back in, in 2001, um, but it's kind of, a you know, a quaint little village. Um, there's no established police department that's covered by the state police, and so it's you know kind of a again charming little town and, and Dean uh, like I said grew up in the area he hunted he fished he you know he was a outdoorsman from what I'm told very well liked easy going easy to get along with and he'd been working for a, a, some type of a, I think a, a plumbing support, uh, company or something doing installations and he had been injured um, a few months prior hurt his shoulder was out on workman's comp and um, he was building a house uh, so he took that time as an opportunity to kind of get some work done in his house. Uh, That, you know, was where he was at uh, early November of 01. And so what ended up happening? Well, it's, um, there's a lot of unknowns, still a lot of questions, I think. But uh, I can run you through the scenario as I know it um, at this point. There had been some type of an event the week before and he had loaned, an article of clothing to some young ladies. It was cold, I guess, and I them a sweater or something. And a couple of the girls tried to return it. This was on the, I believe, the, either the 15th or the 16th. The dates are a little unclear. Um, and they, they got to his house, which is on a road called Sky Hollow Road, which, uh, if you look on a map, is um, extremely uh, uh, rural. Uh, maybe four or five houses scattered Uh, on the length of the road Um, not really that close to each other at all and he was building his house there so they they went to the house to return the the item and um, lights were on Uh, Dean had two dogs one was a Rottweiler who was very uh, aggressive I guess that was chained up Uh, and the second was a boxer who was running loose and the boxer was very aggressive Uh, in other words the girls were afraid to get out of the car because of the way the dog was acting because he was loose Uh, Lights were on in the house, door was open, um, no sign of Dean, uh, so they left. And this is where it gets a little confusing date-wise. Apparently, the next day, which is the 16th, they returned again, although there's some indication that perhaps um, the first day they went was on the 16th, and the second day was the 17th. It's really confusing. But they went back the second time um, later in the afternoon. uh, I think it was getting dark out or was dark out. And, um, again, same scenario this time the the dog was so aggressive, it was biting the tires of the car. Huh. So they, they left and they telephoned a close friend of, uh, Dean's, uh, to the name of Gibbs. And, um, he met the girls, went to the house and he found Dean, uh, on the side of the house, which was, you know, from the driveway, you, you wouldn't be able to see that. Um, Uh, and he was obviously deceased, they called the the, uh, state police and they responded. This was about 6.20 p.m. uh, on November 17th, 2001.
1: So he might have been dead for up
0: to three days at that point or two days? I would say the earliest could have been the 15th. I believe they had him seen on the afternoon of the 16th. But that doesn't necessarily add up with what the girls had seen, so that you know without having done any investigation on this at all yet um it's kind of still up in the air as to you know what, when exactly he had been um he had been shot he was shot then yeah, he was shot to death um again, we don't have the autopsy report as of this writing um but so where the the wounds were how many what caliber all that is still kind of a Unknown, uh, that is, information has not been released by the state police. Um, so that's one of the things that we're hoping to learn, you know, when and if the autopsy report comes out. Great.
2: What, what was done in the immediate investigation?
0: Well, again, the state, for obvious reasons, has not released a lot of information. I know a number of his friends were talked to and, um, you know, I'm sure the routine uh, was followed, um, but we don't at this point have any record of that from what they've done. Uh, and I don't anticipate getting that, obviously, from them. Uh, so we're going to have to kind of start at the beginning and, and work through it.
1: Now, you just said for obvious reasons, they haven't released that information. What are the obvious reasons? Because it's still an open investigation. And does the fact that it's from 2001 have. Do they look at... I mean, is there like a a time frame where they would probably start to release this information? And are we reaching that?
0: If there's... You know, basic protocol would probably be not to release information because it's still considered an act of investigation. They still have um, a detective from the Major Crime Squad who's assigned to it, and he's still working it. I've I've spoken to him. And um, they you are not in the habit of releasing um, investigative details prior to uh, certainly an arrest being made. Um, You know, that does make it difficult for private investigators to come in because you don't know what's been done, who's been talked to, who hasn't, who's been cleared, who the suspect is. You kind of have to develop that yourself. Sometimes that's a good thing because, you you know, you, you follow leads that perhaps they didn't or, um, gave up on or cleared and, you know, you maybe come up with some different information or whatever. So it's not always a negative to start from scratch.
1: Okay. Yeah. That's a, that's a really good way to look at it. I always just imagine um, someone like yourself, how long were you in law enforcement?
0: 35 years and then I retired and then twice I've been back as interim for college department. So off and on 30, over 35 years. I always
1: imagine somebody like you over 35 years in law enforcement, you could just walk into the major crime unit and be like, Hey, I'm Lou. Give me what you got.
0: <laughs> Unfortunately, you know, you're either in or you're out. <laughs> <laughs> and when you're out, um, you're out. And, you know, I won't – I will say this. Vermont, with Brianna's case in particularly, has have been extremely cooperative with, with the private – with us, okay? And um, so, yeah, and I'm sure that plays a role in it. Um, but, you know, they – the investigators may want to do one thing and maybe, you know, the department policy is something different. So they can't be violating department policy no matter what they perhaps would like to do. I think that can be frustrating, you know, for a private investigator. It can be frustrating for them, too.
2: So this is uh, considered a solvable
0: case, I take it. It, it. That's one of the attractive things about it. I think, um, yeah, it's solvable. I mean, I, it, we're, we're looking at, again, a town of, of 1,100 people. His circle of associates was not uh, huge, and it's not um, it's not like a city where you could have a random killer that you know was had no association with him. So you, you couldn't you don't you'd have to be lost to find this house if you didn't know it was there. And so the, the, you know the chances of an outsider doing it are, are, are almost negligible. Um, which narrows it down considerably, I would imagine. Again, I haven't really investigated. But. And while I think of it, that's just something I like to point out. Uh, it's unusual in these cases for us to be doing this at the start of the investigation and uh, not after it's been investigated. And I think we talked about that. It's one of you think things about, this particular podcast is we haven't really done a lot of work on it. haven't done any work on it yet. So we're kind of bringing in the public at the, at the start rather than the middle or the end.
1: That's kind of what I was getting at with the whole template idea of private investigations for the missing. A case comes to us and then we use this platform to get the word out there. And this is a really unique situation. This is a, almost a a perfect uh, storm of situation. You have a case where it's not, not so old where you have to worry about interviewing people that, that, might not be with us anymore, for example, and you get the opportunity to start from scratch and solicit the public's information and any public knowledge that's out there. uh, I think that's really important. I'm glad you brought that up.
0: Uh, Yeah, and I, the chances of the case not having someone out there who knows what happened are slim, I think. I think someone knows, I guess, a better way to put it. I think the information is out there, and they're either reluctant to come forward for one of a number of reasons, perhaps, you know, safety, perhaps, uh, you know, their involvement in the crime, perhaps their relationship with the person who may admit it, you know, whatever. But as I think we've discussed before, one advantage, (laughs) if there is any of doing a cold case, is things change. In 20 years, uh, allegiances change. People find religion. You know, uh, people have a different perspective on things. They may be change their lifestyle when they're no longer involved in uh, certain criminal activity or whatever. So in that sense, sometimes your, your time is an ally instead of an enemy.
2: We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. Right. So, what are the first steps then in investigating the case?
0: Uh, do a podcast. <laughs> this <Perfect>. is it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's getting the information out there. And, you know, we put up a Facebook page, uh, we posted it at a couple of sites. Certainly, this podcast was one of the first things I wanted to get done so that we could get the word out there that, hey, we're active, we're looking at this. Um, You know, we're not the police. If you have information, you come to us. If you have, you know, reluctance to speak to the authority, which which many people do, um, understandably, um, you know, talk to us. And, um, you know, let's hope that that the publicity generally will stimulate um, conversation. And that conversation can very well stimulate um, a lead. Uh, I'd like to do at some point a call in campaign like we did initially in Brianna's case. And that generated about 20 leads. None of them materialized. Um, But uh, again, the publicity was great for the case. It it generated interest. And, um, um, you know, since that time, we have gotten leads that that may very well lead to something. So it's all um, it's all kind of a domino effect. I think.
1: Any uh, family members, any friends that you can speak to uh, in regards to Dean Webster?
0: Yeah, he actually had a number of brothers and sisters. Um, I've only spoken with one, and that's the one that we're well, actually. I've spoken to her, his father also, but his sister Sandy is uh, my main contact, and she's kind of like—I um, guess I'd call her the client. She's the one that we're uh, we're going to clear things with, and we're going to answer to, and, and everything. And she's been extremely cooperative. She sent. A number of photographs, I think, which I think I may have forwarded to you uh, of him growing up fishing, hunting, you know, uh, whatever. And um, you kind of get a de- an idea of his personality just by looking at the pictures while he's smiling, you know, enjoying what he's doing, etc. So she's been my main contact. He does have other sisters that I've reached out to and um, am either haven't yet made contact with or have made contact and haven't had an opportunity to speak to him yet. Um, I did speak to her his father a very very nice man um I feel so bad for him i I think he's eighty eighty one and um you know, as often with parents you you lose a child before you know you don't want your children to die before you do when you lose one under circumstances like this and don't have any answers uh it's something that that you carry with you and you know I'd really like to um have him. Be able to, to clear that before he passes, if if at all possible.
1: Any um, wife or any girlfriend involved?
0: Um, n- nothing. That's he, he definitely wasn't married. Um, there's been you know talk of a girl that he's dated, but no one. I don't think he had any uh, serious relationship at the time or any fiance at the time. At least, again, I'm at the in the baby step stages of the investigation, so a lot of these things I, I, I don't know yet, honestly. I haven't haven't done anything on the case. It was just not only until last week that we got the paperwork signed and, and really got to go, I had to go for it. And so I haven't really done anything on it yet. I wanted to get this podcast on, get the Facebook page running before we did too much.
2: Great. And is a uh, freedom of information request one of the first things that you're going to do? Probably not.
0: <laughs> um, you know, one of the valid reasons for not uh, replying to a, a FOIA is uh, the fact that it's an active criminal investigation. So um, I don't know what I would ask for <laughs> that is not going to get that response. And so at this point, I have no intentions of it. I have I have made arrangements for the autopsy, not through a FOIA, but the family's entitled to a copy. They've never gotten one. Um, so that's well, one thing. Her father, his father rather, is um, taking care of for me. He's requested it. So. That'll be the first step. Uh, I've promised um, not only he, but the state police, that that would be confidential.
1: Is that something that's uncommon, or is that pretty common to not have the family members have access to the autopsy report?
0: Well, well the family members are entitled to it, but that's it. It's not public info. And in many times, there's a good reason why, um, you know, when you're. Conducting an investigation, particularly a homicide investigation, one thing you have to be cognizant of is the fact that people falsely confess sometimes, um, or that if if you do have the perpetrator and he has confessed, you want to verify that that is in fact him, because an uncooperative confession is is not enough to convict someone. So by withholding information relative to the scene, relative to perhaps the autopsy or, or the condition or Perhaps the weapon used or any type of information that only the person who committed the crime would know um, is common. Uh, and that way you can weed out false confessions or verify a, um, a true confession.
1: And I know you said that there was no information or you haven't found the information on what caliber the uh, the bullets were. But do you know how many times he was shot?
0: Not for certain. No. not sure how i know this or where i heard this it could have been a rumor that you know just someone perpetuated it was three times we shot three times but i i you know i I don't want to say that for sure because i don't know that that's a fact that's just what um what was said
2: i see here in an article from wcax.com it says that the deadly weapon used was not a hunting weapon and there were multiple shots and the killer was close under 50 feet away. And, uh, Dean was facing these shots,
0: I believe as well. Yeah. That's what the news report says. I mean, that may very well be the case, but, um, you know, multiple, what's multiple. It's more than one, right? Yep. So other than the fact that, um, he was shot multiple times. I don't know that that tells you a heck of a lot.
1: From that same article, it's interesting that they mention Vermont's rifle season had just uh, rifle hunting season had just begun, right? And but this wasn't an accident because this was not a hunting.
0: Yeah, that's what they say. And I don't know, so that you know doesn't tell me much. I without knowing the caliber, but you know, normally speaking, a hunting accident doesn't involve three shots either or multiple shots. <laughs> uh, not from close up, right? So, uh, yeah, I, but I think that's probably, you know, looking back at the time, that was probably speculation. Well, it was deer season. You know, he's up in the woods. There's a lot of deer. Maybe somebody shot him accidentally. So they probably want to put that to bed right away. And But, you know, it's important to note that it was deer season so that uh, shots heard by anyone would be disregarded. Right. You wouldn't pay any attention at all to um <laughs> in that area to to gunshots in that, in that wooded area like that.
1: You also said that you spoke to his father, who's a really nice guy and you want to try to get some closure for him. I mean, it's not really closure. It's just sort of an answer for him because there's no way you're bringing his son back. But, um, how do you even, uh, introduce that conversation to somebody when you call them? How do you, how do you introduce yourself and how do you open up that, that topic for them? You know, it's going to be painful, right? (sighs)
0: Yes, um, and it's it's a difficult call. It, it, you know, as a longtime law enforcement officer, the, the worst call you have to do is the one at 2 o'clock in the morning to knock on someone's door and tell them that their son or daughter is not, um, not coming home anymore. Um, and this, you know, isn't quite as bad as that, but it, it's always a difficult topic, I guess, because you never know how the – person is going to react in this case i i called him and i told him who i was and i knew from talking to his daughter that he was very interested in finding out who who did it to his son so i i knew that would that would be um make for a positive introduction anyways as opposed to someone who maybe just wanted to put it behind them and not not think of it um and there are people like that who who. You know, their way of dealing with things are to either pretend they didn't happen or try and forget that they happened. Sure. But but I knew going in that, that he was receptive to the investigation. So uh, once I explained to him who I was and everything, and I, and I think the biggest problem people have is, uh, and I can understand this, you call up and you say, hey, I'm so-and-so and uh, we're going to do this for nothing. Their immediate reaction is, uh, yeah, right. (laughs) What kind of scam is this, Um, if that makes any sense? So it sometimes takes convincing that, hey, uh, you know, this is the real deal. We're not looking for anything. We're not looking for any money. We're not looking for any recognition. All we want to do is try and help. Um, and that's the, the mission of the nonprofit and that's what we're here for. And we obviously aren't guaranteeing anything because realistically the chances of solving cold cases is not real high. Um, but if you don't try, (laughs) they're not existent. And
2: do the Webster's believe they know who did it?
0: Sandy's the only one I have really had conversation with and, um, I don't believe she, she does. I don't believe she has any firm opinions. Now we haven't really spoken, you know, it's very difficult trying to interview somebody under these conditions on the telephone. Um, You know, normal conditions, I drive up there and sit down and we'd have a coffee and we'd talk for an hour, an hour and a half. Um, But with this whole situation, the way it is with COVID and everything, it's, everything has to be done either online or on the phone, which makes it a little more, um, more difficult. So, I'll um, talk to her again. In fact, I've invited her to join us <laughs> if that's okay with you guys um, next podcast. Of course. Case. and She said she'd be happy to do that if it would help. So, um, you know, maybe uh, by that time we can have a conversation and you can ask her that question yourself. Okay,
2: great. And uh, do you know if there's any piece of evidence or, Something like that that investigators are looking for, like something specific. Like I know in Maura Murray's case, we say, you know, her keys and her wallet have never been found. So obviously, if you come across that, um, you know, make a call. Is there anything like that that we know of
0: just the murder weapon? Well, certainly the weapon. If if they have. And again, I don't know what they have because I have not seen their report. I haven't um, they haven't discussed it with me. Are there shell casings? I don't know. Uh, Have they recovered uh, the bullet? I I don't know. Without the shell casings or the uh, the bullet, uh, even the firearm is going to be a big help. But assumably, they've they've recovered some of that evidence. Do they have tire tracks? I don't know. You know, was anything missing? You know, was his wallet there? I'm not sure. You know, until we get the answers to some of those questions, I I don't know what evidence they'd be looking for other than, of course, A, a witness who, who may or may not exist, or B, the firearm. But there could be foot impressions. There could be tire impressions. Of course, 20 years later, the value of a tire impression or foot impression is probably not very good. You know, So I, I can't answer that because I don't know. I don't have that knowledge.
1: Is there anything to the report? You had sent us a document with your notes and said there was an unconfirmed report that he may have had a grow operation in his house and he was selling marijuana.
0: That's been mentioned. I haven't verified that. But that was mentioned. It certainly might lead to a motive. I mean, if if looking at what he says or what they, his friends say or his, his family says about his personality, it doesn't sound like he had any enemies. It Doesn't sound like there was any romantic involvement with with anyone that would would lead to this, a jealousy or anything like that. So I don't believe he had any disputes with anyone, including neighbors. Uh, so you try and rule out the motives and. If, in fact, he was involved in some type of narcotic activity, that certainly could be a motive that he was the subject of a drug rip uh, or a disagreement over a drug sale or something along those lines. So that's a possibility. But again, I haven't truly verified that that's the case.
1: There's also the well driller who he paid $1,000 to to drill a well on his property uh, as well, and that was right around the same time, and I know you're still in the very early stages, but has anyone mentioned anything about this well driller maybe going back for more money
0: no i don't I don't believe that was the that would even be a a, a possibility I, I he was drilling a neighbor's well and, and Dean needed a well drilled and went down and they made a deal he paid him a thousand dollars cash that now to me that's of interest because. Not many people walk around with a thousand dollars in their pocket, that, that, um, especially, you know, in their circumstances where he's out of work, comp and everything. It's kind of in credence to perhaps the narcotic angle. I don't think the the well driller, from what I from what I understand, would be anywhere near, you know, a suspect or anything like that. It, it, they had settled the price. And that was that was the end of that.
1: So. Do you have a specific address for him on Sky Hollow Road? I think it'd be interesting to check that out on like Google Earth or something.
0: I know which house it is. I, I in the interest of privacy, because his family members live there now, I, I'd rather not publicize.
1: You don't want to put you don't want to put an address out there to the public for anyone to just go and visit.
0: <laughs> uh, no, we don't want to wind up like the poor people that live near uh, uh, Mara Murray's uh, tree. There's only like six, seven houses on a whole location. So, but I, I don't even know if they have house numbers to be honest with you. Right, it's pretty rural. So, what is
2: next then after uh, after the podcast? You're uh, you're gonna dig in?
0: Yeah, I, I think we're gonna start talking. I want to talk to a couple of the family members, get a little more background on Dean. Um, I have, like I said, the person who brought this to my attention did a lot of work on it. And um, did did a pretty good job and then kind of got to a stone wall. But there's a number of people that have not been talked to that should be talked to. Um, So I'll probably try and start that. You know, usually in these cases I like to do is learn as much about the case as I can before I start going and talking to people because, you know, you want to know what you're talking about, I guess. And um, I'm kind of, so I'm getting to the stage now where I'm feeling comfortable with the sequence of events and who is who. And, but there are some definitely some individuals that um, I'd like to interview. Some have been interviewed already by the uh, VSP and some um, may or not have been. I don't know.
1: And where is the VSP at right now? Did, you said that they had an investigator assigned to it?
0: Yes, they do. one' in a major crime unit. Uh, sergeants is uh, assigned to the case and he's, um, you know, he's done work on it. I, it's obviously not, um, I wouldn't say a priority because other cases take precedence. Fresh cases have to be worked while they're fresh. So I, you know, I think he does this when he can. And I think he's done a good job on it. Uh, from what I understand, I, again, I don't know the particulars, but I do know it's, um, Active and and one of the reasons I know that is because I even before I even heard about this case, uh, we were at another meeting on Brianna's case and uh, this case came up in general and there was just some conversation between two of them about you know the fact that they were they were still actively involved in the case. This is before I had even heard of it, so you know I know they are they are actively still interested in this. Again, how much time they're able to afford. To, to devote to it they're they're they have a big caseload and they're, um there's not a lot of them and um they have a lot of a lot of other priorities i guess and you know to 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 spend time on a 20 year old case when you have new stuff coming in is, it doesn't make a lot of sense sometimes well is there anything else you'd like to put out there um, just you know the obvious. If anybody's got any information, we'd love to hear it. Again, there's a uh, g- an email account we've set up just for this. It's uh, who killed Dean at gmail dot com. Uh, there's a Facebook page out there. Uh, the family has one, and um, we have one set up also. If anybody has any information, we we'd love to hear it. No matter how trivial or uh, perhaps, you know, even if they've told someone it before. We've run into that before in other cases where information slipped through the cracks. Uh, so it sometimes doesn't hurt to um, have a fresh set of eyes look at it. Great.
1: Would you recommend anybody reaching out to org to submit a tip?
0: They certainly could um, because they channel that to whoever is investigating the crime. So they could, you know, they could just do it there. They could do it through the Who Killed Dean Gmail account. Or um, the Vermont State Police have a tip line. And certainly if they feel comfortable talking to the state police, they, then that's, uh, that's good, too. That the, the key here is solving the case, not who solves the case.